Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I will be reading A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1. Camelot. 
Camelot. Camelot, said I to myself. I don't seem to remember hearing of it before. Name of the asylum, likely. It was a soft, reposeful summer landscape, as lovely as a dream and as lonesome as Sunday. The air was full of the smell of flowers and the buzzing of insects and the twittering of birds, and there were no people, no wagons, there was no stir of life, nothing going on. The road was mainly a winding path with hoof prints in it, and now and then a faint trace of wheels on either side in the grass, wheels that apparently had a tire as broad as one's hand. Presently, a fair slip of a girl, about ten years old, with a cataract of golden hair streaming down her shoulders, came along. Around her head she wore a hoop of flame-red poppies. It was as sweet an outfit as I ever saw, what there was of it. She walked indolently along with a mind at rest, its peace reflected in her innocent face. The circus man paid no attention to her, didn't even seem to see her. And she, she was no more startled at his fantastic makeup than if she was used to his like every day of her life. She was going by as indifferently as she might have gone by a couple of cows. But when she happened to notice me, then there was a change. Up went her hands and she was turned to stone. Her mouth dropped open. Her eyes stared wide and timorously. She was the picture of astonished curiosity touched with fear. And there she stood gazing, in a sort of stupefied fascination, till we turned a corner of the wood and were lost to her view. That she should be startled at me instead of at the other man was too many for me. I couldn't make head or tail of it. And that she should seem to consider me a spectacle and totally overlook her own merits in that respect was another puzzling thing and a display of magnanimity, too, that was surprising in one so young. There was food for thought there. I moved along as one in a dream. As we approached the town, signs of life began to appear. At intervals we passed a wretched cabin with a thatched roof, and about it small fields and garden patches in an indifferent state of cultivation. There were people, too, brawny men, with long, coarse, uncombed hair that hung down over their faces and made them look like animals. They and the women, as a rule, wore a coarse, tow-linen robe that came well below the knee and a sort of rude sandal, and many wore an iron collar. All of these people stared at me, talked about me, ran into the huts and fetched out their families to gape at me, but nobody ever noticed that other fellow except to make him humble salutation and get no response for their pains. In the town were some substantial windowless houses of stone scattered among a wilderness of thatched cabins. The streets were mere crooked alleys and unpaved. Troops of dogs and children played in the sun and made life a noise. Hogs roamed and rooted contentedly about, and one of them lay in a reeking wallow in the middle of a main thoroughfare, and suckled her family. Presently there was a distant blare of military music. It came nearer, still nearer, and soon a noble cavalcade wound into view, glorious with 
plumed helmets and flashing mail and flaunting banners and rich doublets and horsecloths and gilded spearheads. And through the muck and swine and brats and joyous dogs and shabby huts, it took its gallant way, and in its wake we followed. Followed through one winding alley and then another, and climbing, always climbing, till at last we gained the breezy heights where the huge castle stood. There was an exchange of bugle blasts, then a parley from the walls, where men at arms, in Holberg and Morian, marched back and forth with a halberd at shoulder, under flapping banners, with the rude figure of a dragon displayed upon them. And then the great gates were flung open, the drawbridge was lowered, and the head of the cavalcade swept forward under the frowning arches, and we, following, soon found ourselves in a great paved court, with towers and turrets, stretching up into the blue air on all the four sides. And all about us the dismount was going on, and much greeting and ceremony and running to and fro, and a display of moving and intermingling colours, and an altogether pleasant stir and noise and confusion. Chapter 2 King Arthur's Court The moment I got a chance, I slipped aside privately and touched an ancient, common-looking man on the shoulder and said, in an insinuating, confidential way, Friend, do me a kindness. Do you belong to the asylum? or are you just on a visit, or something like that? He looked me over stupidly and said, Marry, fair sir, me seemeth, that will do, I said. I reckon you are a patient. I moved away cogitating, and at the same time keeping an eye out for any chance passenger in his right mind that might come along and give me some light. I judged I had found one presently, so I drew him aside and said in his ear, if I could see the head keeper a minute, only just a minute, prithee, do not let me. Let you what? Hinder me, then, if the word please thee better. Then he went on to say he was an undercook and could not stop to gossip, though he would like it another time, for it would comfort his very liver to know where I got my clothes. As he started away, he pointed and said yonder was one who was idle enough for my purpose and was seeking me besides, no doubt. This was an airy, slim boy in shrimp-coloured tights that made him look like a forked carrot. The rest of his gear was blue silk and dainty laces and ruffles, and he had long yellow curls and wore a plumed pink satin cap, tilted complacently over his ear. By his look he was good-natured, by his gait he was satisfied with himself. He was pretty enough to frame. He arrived, looked me over with a smiling and impudent curiosity, said he had come for me, and informed me that he was a page. Go along, I said. You ain't more than a paragraph. It was pretty severe, but I was nettled. However, it never fazed him. He didn't appear to know he was hurt. He began to talk and laugh in happy, thoughtless, boyish fashion as we walked along and made himself old friends with me at once, asked me all sorts of questions about myself and about my clothes. But never waited for an answer, always chattered straight ahead, as if he didn't know he'd asked a question and wasn't expecting any reply, until at last he happened to mention that he was born in the year 513. 
It made the cold chills creep over me. I stopped and said a little faintly, Maybe I didn't hear you just right. Say it again and say it slow. What year was it? 513. 513? You don't look it. Come, my boy, I'm a stranger and friendless. Be honest and honourable with me. Are you in your right mind? He said he was. Are these other people in their right minds? He said they were. And this isn't an asylum. I mean, it isn't a place where they cure crazy people? He said it wasn't. Well, then I said, either I'm a lunatic or something just as awful has happened. Now tell me, honest and true, where am I? In King Arthur's court. I waited a minute to let that idea shudder its way home and then said, And according to your notions, what year is it now? 528, 19th of June. I felt a mournful sinking of the heart and muttered, I shall never see my friends again, never, never again. They will not be born for more than 1,300 years yet. I seemed to believe the boy. I didn't know why. Something in me seemed to believe him. My consciousness, as you may say. But my reason didn't. My reason straightway began to clamor. That was natural. I didn't know how to go about satisfying it, because I knew that the testimony of men wouldn't serve. My reason would say they were lunatics and throw out their evidence. But all of a sudden I stumbled on the very thing, just by luck. I knew that the only total eclipse of the sun in the first half of the 6th century occurred on the 21st of June, A.D., 528, O.S., and began three minutes after 12 noon. I also knew that no total eclipse of the sun was due in what to me was a present year, that is, 1879. So if I could keep my anxiety and curiosity from eating the heart out of me for 48 hours, I should then find out for certain whether this boy was telling me the truth or not. Wherefore, being a practical Connecticut man, I now shoved this whole problem clear out of my mind till its appointed day and hour should come, in order that I might turn all my attention to the circumstances of the present moment and be alert and ready to make the most out of them that could be made. One thing at a time is my motto, and just play that thing for all it is worth, even if it's only two pair and a jack. I made up my mind to two things. If it was still the 19th century, and I was among lunatics and couldn't get away, I would presently boss at asylum or know the reason why. And if, on the other hand, it was really the 6th century, all right, I didn't want any softer thing. I would boss the whole country inside of three months, for I judged I would have the start of the best educated man in the kingdom by a matter of 1,300 years and upward. I'm not a man to waste time after my mind's made up and there's work on hand. So I said to the page, Now, Clarence, my boy, if that might happen to be your name, I'll get you to post me up a little if you don't mind. What is the name of that apparition that brought me here? My master and thine? That is the good knight and great lord, Sir Kay, the seneschal, foster brother to our liege, the king. Very good. Go on, tell me everything. 
He made a long story of it, but the part that had immediate interest for me was this. He said I was Sir Kay's prisoner, and that in the course of custom I would be flung into a dungeon and left there on scant commons until my friends ransomed me, unless I chanced to rot first. I saw that the last chance had the best show, but I didn't waste any bother about that. Time was too precious. The page said, further, that dinner was about ended in the great hall by this time, and that as soon as the sociability and the heavy drinking should begin, Sir Kay would have me in and exhibit me before King Arthur and his illustrious knights, seated at the table round, and would brag about his exploit in capturing me, and would probably exaggerate the facts a little, but it wouldn't be good form for me to correct him, and not over safe, either. And when I was done being exhibited, then ho for the dungeon. But he, Clarence, would find a way to come and see me every now and then, and cheer me up, and help me get word to my friends. Get word to my friends, I thanked him. I couldn't do less. And about this time, a lackey came to say I was wanted. So Clarence led me in, and took me off to one side, and sat down by me. Well, it was a curious kind of spectacle, and interesting. It was an immense place, and rather naked, yes, and full of loud contrasts. It was very, very lofty, so lofty, that the banners, depending from the arched beams and girders, away up there, floated in a sort of twilight. There was a stone-railed gallery at each end, high up, with musicians in one, and women clothed in stunning colours in the other. The floor was of big stone flags laid in black and white squares, rather battered by age and use and needing repair. As to ornament, there wasn't any, strictly speaking, though on the walls hung some huge tapestries which were probably taxed as works of art. Battle pieces they were, with horses shaped like those which children cut out of paper or create in gingerbread, with men on them in scale armour, whose scales were represented by round holes, so that the man's coat looked as if it had been done with a biscuit punch. There was a fireplace, big enough to camp in, and its projecting sides and hood, of carved and pillared stonework, had the look of a cathedral door. Along the walls stood men-at-arms in breastplate and morion, with halberds for their only weapon, rigid as statues, and that is what they looked like. In the middle of this groined and vaulted public square was an oaken table which they called the Table Round. It was as large as a circus ring, and around it sat a great company of men, dressed in such various and splendid colours that it hurts one's eyes to look at them. They wore their plumed hats, right along, except that whenever one addressed himself directly to the king, he lifted his hat a trifle, just as he was beginning his remark. Mainly they were drinking from entire ox horns, but a few were still munching bread or gnawing beef bones. There was about an average of two dogs to one man, and these sat in expectant attitudes till a spent bone was flung to them, and then they went for it by brigades and divisions with a rush, and there ensued a fight which filled the prospect with a tumultuous chaos of plunging heads and bodies and flashing tails and the storm of howlings and barkings deafened all speech for the time. But that was no matter, for the dogfight was always a bigger interest anyway. The men rose, sometimes, to observe it the better and bet on it, 
and the ladies and the musicians stretched themselves out over their balusters for the same object, and all broke into delighted ejaculations from time to time. In the end, the winning dog stretched himself out comfortably with his bone between his paws and proceeded to growl over it and gnaw it and grease the floor with it, just as fifty others were already doing, and the rest of the court resumed their previous industries and entertainments. As a rule, the speech and behaviour of these people were gracious and courtly, and I noticed that they were good and serious listeners when anybody was telling anything, I mean in a dog-fightless interval. And plainly, too, they were a childlike and innocent lot, telling lies of the stateliest pattern with the most gentle and winning naivety, and ready and willing to listen to anybody else's lie and believe it too. It was hard to associate them with being cruel or dreadful, and yet they dealt in tales of blood and suffering with a guileless relish that made me almost forget to shudder. I was not the only prisoner present. There were twenty or more. Poor devils, many of them were maimed, hacked, carved in a frightful way, and their hair, their faces, their clothing were caked with black and stiffened drenchings of blood. They were suffering sharp physical pain, of course, and weariness and hunger and thirst, no doubt. And at least none had given them the comfort of a wash or even the poor charity of a lotion for their wounds. Yet you never heard them utter a moan or a groan or saw them show any sign of restlessness or any disposition to complain. The thought was forced upon me, the rascals. They have served other people so in their day. It being their turn now, they're not expecting any better treatment than this. So their philosophical bearing is not an outcome of mental training, intellectual fortitude, reasoning. It is mere animal training. Chapter 3 Nights of the Table Round Mainly the round table talk was monologues, narrative accounts of the adventures in which these prisoners were captured and their friends and backers killed and stripped of their steeds and armour. As a general thing, as far as I could make out. These murderous adventures were not forays undertaken to avenge injuries, nor to settle old disputes or sudden fallings out. No, as a rule they were simply duels between strangers. Duels between people who had never even been introduced to each other, and between whom existed no cause of offence whatever. Many a time I had seen a couple of boys, strangers, meet by chance, and say simultaneously, I can lick you and go at it on the spot. But I had always imagined until now that that sort of thing belonged to children only, and was a sign and mark of childhood. But here they were sticking to it, and taking pride in it, clear up into full age and beyond. Yet there was something very engaging about these great, simple-hearted creatures, something attractive and lovable. There did not seem to be brains enough in the entire nursery, so to speak, to bait a fishhook with but you didn't seem to mind that, after a little, because you soon saw that brains were not needed in a society like that, and indeed would have marred it, hindered it, spoiled its symmetry, perhaps rendered its existence impossible. There was a fine manliness observable in almost every face, and in some a certain loftiness and sweetness that rebuked your belittling criticisms and stilled them. A most noble benignity and purity reposed 
and the countenance of him they called Sir Galahad, and likewise in the kings also. And there was majesty and greatness in the giant frame and high bearing of Sir Lancelot of the lake. There was presently an incident which centred the general interest upon this Sir Lancelot. At a sign from a sort of master of ceremonies, six or eight of the prisoners rose and came forward in a body and knelt on the floor and lifted up their hands toward the ladies' gallery and begged the grace of a word with the queen. The most conspicuously situated lady in that massed flower-bed of feminine show and finery inclined her head by way of assent, and then the spokesman of the prisoners delivered himself and his fellows into her hands for pardon, ransom, captivity, or death, as she in her good pleasure might elect. And this, as he said, he was doing by the command of Sir Kay, whose prisoners they were, he having vanquished them by his single might and prowess in sturdy conflict in the field. Surprise and astonishment flashed from face to face all over the house. The queen's gratified smile faded out at the name of Sir Kay, and she looked disappointed. And the page whispered in my ear with an accent and manner expressive of extravagant derision. Sir Kay, forsooth. Oh, call me pet names, dearest, call me a marine. In twice a thousand years shall the unholy invention of man labor at odds to beget the fellow to this majestic lie. Every eye was fastened with severe inquiry upon Sir Kay. But he was equal to the occasion. He got up and played his hand like a major and took every trick. He said he would state the case exactly according to the facts. He would tell the simple, straightforward tale without comment of his own. And then, said he, if ye find glory and honour due, ye will give it on to him, who is the mightiest man of his hands, that ever bear a shield or strake with sword in the ranks of Christian battle, even him that sitteth there. And he pointed to Sir Lancelot. Ah, he fetched them. It was a rattling good stroke. Then he went on and told how Sir Lancelot, seeking adventures, some brief time gone by, killed seven giants at one sweep of his sword, and set a hundred and forty-two captive maidens free, and then went further, still seeking adventures, and found him, Sir Kay, fighting a desperate fight against nine foreign knights, and straightway took the battle solely into his own hands, and conquered the nine. And that night, Sir Lancelot rose quietly, and dressed him in Sir Kay's armour, and took Sir Kay's horse, and got him away into distant lands, and vanquished sixteen knights in one pitched battle, and thirty-four in another. And all these, and the former nine, he made to swear, that about Whitsuntide they would ride to Arthur's court, and yield them to Queen Guinevere's hands as captives of Sir Kay, spoil of his knightly prowess, and now here were these half-dozen, and the rest would be along as soon as they might be healed of their desperate wounds. Well, it was touching to see the queen blush and smile and look embarrassed and happy and fling furtive glances at Sir Lancelot that would have got him shot in Arkansas to a dead certainty. Everybody praised the valour and magnanimity of Sir Lancelot. And as for me, I was perfectly amazed that one man, all by himself, should have been able to beat down and capture such battalions of practice fighters. I said as much to Clarence, but this mocking featherhead only said, 
and Sir Kay had had time to get another skin of sour wine into him. He had seen the accompte doubled. I looked at the boy in sorrow, and as I looked I saw the cloud of a deep despondency settle upon his countenance. I followed the direction of his eye and saw that a very old and white-bearded man, clothed in a flowing black gown, had risen and was standing at the table upon unsteady legs and feebly swaying his ancient head and surveying the company with his watery and wandering eye. The same suffering look that was in the page's face was observable in all the faces around, the look of dumb creatures who know they must endure and make no moan. Mary, we shall have it again, sighed the boy, that same old weary tale that he hath told a thousand times in the same words, and that he will tell till he dieth, every time he hath gotten his barrel full and feeleth his exaggeration mill a-working. Would God I had died or saw this day. Who is it? Merlin, the mighty liar and magician. Perdition singe him for the weariness he worketh with his one tale. But the men fear him for what he hath, the storms and the lightnings, and all the devils that be in hell at his beck and call. They would have dug his entrails out these many years ago to get at that tale and squelch it. He telleth it always in the third person, making believe he is too modest to glorify himself. Maledictions light upon him, misfortune be his dole. Good friend, prithee call me for evening song. The boy nestled himself upon my shoulder and pretended to go to sleep. The old man began his tale, and presently the lad was asleep in reality. So also were the dogs, and the court, the lackeys, and the files of men-at-arms. The droning voice droned on. A soft snoring arose on all sides and supported it, like a deep and subdued accompaniment of wind instruments. Some heads were bowed upon folded arms, some lay back with open mouths that issued unconscious music. The flies buzzed a bit, unmolested. The rats swarmed softly out from a hundred holes and pattered about, and made themselves at home everywhere. And one of them sat up like a squirrel on the king's head, and held a bit of cheese in its hands and nibbled it, and dribbled the crumbs in the king's face with naive and impudent irreverence. It was a tranquil scene, and restful to the weary eye and the jaded spirit. This was the old man's tale, he said. Right, so the king and Merlin departed, and went until an hermit that was a good man and a great leech. So the hermit searched all his wounds and gave him good salves. So the king was there three days, and then were his wounds well mended, that he might ride and go, and so departed. And as they rode, Arthur said, I have no sword. No force, said Merlin. Hereby is the sword that shall be yours, and I may. So they rode till they came to a lake, the which was a fair water and broad, and in the midst of the lake Arthur was ware of an arm clothed in white samite that held a fair sword in that hand. Lo, said Merlin, yonder is that sword that I spake of. With that they saw a damsel going upon the lake. What damsel is that? said Arthur. That is the lady of the lake, said Merlin. Within that lake is a rock, and therein is as fair a place as any on earth, and richly be seen. And this damsel will come to you anon. And then 
speak ye fair to her, that she shall give you that sword. Anon withal came the damsel unto Arthur, and saluted him, and he her again. Damsel, said Arthur, what sword is that, that yonder the arm holdeth above the water? I would it were mine, for I have no sword. Sir Arthur King, said the damsel, that sword is mine. And if ye will give me a gift when I ask it to you, ye shall have it. By my faith, said Arthur, I will give you what gift ye shall ask. Well, said the damsel, go ye into yonder barge, and roar yourself to the sword, and take it, and the scabbard with you, and I will ask my gift when I see my time. So Sir Arthur and Merlin alighted, and tied their horses to two trees, and so they went into the ship, and when they came to the sword that the hand held, Sir Arthur took it up by the handles and took it with him. And the arm and the hand went under the water, and so they came onto the land and rode forth. And then Sir Arthur saw a rich pavilion. What signifieth yonder pavilion? It is the knight's pavilion, said Merlin, that he fought with the last, Sir Pellinore, but he is out. He is not there. He hath ado with a knight of yours, that Eglame. And they have fought together. But at the last, Eglame fled, and else he been dead. And he hath chased him even to Carleon. And we shall meet with him anon in the highway. That is well said, said Arthur. Now have I a sword. Now will I wage battle with him and be avenged on him. Sir, Ye shall not so, said Merlin, for the knight is weary of fighting and chasing, so that ye shall have no worship to have ado with him. Also, he will not likely be matched of one knight living, and therefore it is my counsel, let him pass, for he shall do you good service in short time, and his sons, after his days. Also, ye shall see that day in short space, ye shall be right glad to give him your sister to wed. When I see him, I will do as he advised me, said Arthur. Then Sir Arthur looked on the sword and liked it passing well. Whether liketh you better, said Merlin, the sword or the scabbard? Me liketh better the sword, said Arthur. Ye are more unwise, said Merlin, for the scabbard is worth a ten of the sword. For while ye have the scabbard upon ye, ye shall never lose no blood. Be ye never so sore wounded. Therefore, keep well the scabbard always with you. So they rode to Carleon, and by the way they met with Sir Pellinore. But Merlin had done such a craft that Pellinore saw not Arthur, and he passed by without any words. I marvel, said Arthur, that the knight would not speak. Sir, said Merlin, he saw you not. For, and he had seen you, you had not lightly departed. So they came on to Carleon, whereof his knights were passing glad. And when they heard of his adventures, they marveled that he would jeopard his person so alone. But all men of worship said it was merry to be under such a chieftain that would put his person in adventure as other poor knights did. Good night. <laughs>